Well, it's, uh, it's good to be in here for the first time this semester. It's kind of, uh, kind of weird not being with the, the students tonight, but it's, uh, it's good. I'm glad for the opportunity to be here and uh, glad to, uh, to enter into this uh, the study that uh, we've also been doing with the students, um, uh, the nine, nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And so, so far we've looked at uh, six out of the nine marks, uh, expository preaching, biblical theology, the gospel, conversion, evangelism, and church membership. And uh, next week we'll look at uh, Mark 7 and keep on going, uh, a biblical understanding of church discipline, biblical understanding of discipleship, biblical understanding of church leadership. Uh, but tonight we're going to sort of take a um, an intermission a little bit for, um, in the nine marks. Uh, what, we're not, what we're talking about tonight isn't a mark exactly, um, but we're going to look at what is a healthy church member. And uh, it's going to be based on uh, this book by uh, Thibidi uh, Anyabwile. I think that's how you say that. I gave it my best shot. So anyway, um, but he is a really faithful a pastor and wise theologian, and he has based this book on uh, the book Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, and so it's a perspective, a little bit of a different perspective on these marks that we've been looking at. With all of the marks that we've looked at so far, we've really looked at how, how do we as a whole church want to be marked by these things. Well, tonight we're going to be looking at what are the implications for us as members of the church? How do these things come to bear kind of on on a different side of things. And as with all of the marks of a healthy church that we've been looking at with the nine, nine marks um, study, when it comes to what is a healthy church member, we, we need to understand, um, on the one hand, uh, these, are, these are things that to aspire to. These are ideals. These are things that we see in Scripture, things that we see as marks of maturity, and in this case tonight, marks of maturity of a Christian. Uh, these things are, are something to aspire to. These things are something to value. That's why we're teaching through these things. These are something that we want to be true about our church. These are things tonight that we want to be true about us as individuals. We also need to remember that we're always growing in this, and that on the one hand, we want to grow toward that. We want to identify where are we not this way, but we also not, we need not be discouraged if we don't see perfection here, because to not have one of these marks is not to say, oh, we're not a church. Uh, no, it's to say, well, this is an area where we get to recognize an opportunity to grow in godliness. And the same thing with church membership tonight. We're going to talk about a lot of different things. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of different ideals, a lot of different goals, values. And if these things aren't perfectly true in our lives, it's no reason to be discouraged. It's something uh, that we can ask God for grace to grow in. It's, it's a way that we can identify some areas in our lives where we can uh, increase in Christ-likeness and grow uh, in the gospel of Jesus. So anyway, I kind of set that up that way um, as we get started tonight. So this list of marks of a healthy church member will be pretty familiar if you've been paying attention to the marks of a healthy church. And uh, we've got 10 of them uh, tonight, uh, the nine, and then there's one bonus mark, I guess. Um, and uh, I, I'm coming in tonight thinking that I might have too much material, but if you were here on Sunday night, you know that that's not always a guarantee. <laughs> So we'll see how it goes. If we if we need some extra time, you know, I'll I'll pray. It's fine. I'll, it'll, 
we're covered. So, and speaking of that, I'm going to pray briefly uh, to get us started tonight. So would you bow with me? Father, it is because of your grace to us in Christ that we can say that we are members of the church of Jesus Christ. Lord, you have made us bricks in this building. Lord, you have made us members of this body. You have made us children that are a part of this family. And so, Lord, as we sit in this room, we, we don't do so as strangers, but we do so as brothers and sisters. We don't do so uh, as, as individuals in silos, Lord. No, we do so as members of one another. And so I ask that as we consider some of these things from your word, uh, that you would help us grow. Help us grow in our love for one another. Help us grow in our love for you most of all as we seek uh, to live out the reality that you have established in Christ. So, Lord, teach us tonight, and may we apply these things in our lives and in our life as a church together. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Mark 1 of a healthy church member. A healthy church member is... An expositional listener. I bet you never have identified yourself as an expositional listener before, but maybe you will now. An expositional listener. So around here, uh, thankfully, we value expositional or expository preaching. But a healthy church member is more than just someone who values that. A healthy church member is not just a consumer of expositional preaching. A healthy church member is an expositional listener. Uh, So let me hear from you. What do you think, when I say that, what do you think is the difference between an expositional listener and a consumer of expositional preaching? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we could say uh, a consumer of expositional preaching is, has more of a, a passive posture about it. They value it. They, they identify, you know, this is what I want, but it's less of uh, something that's true for them and more of just something that they want to see in someone else. An expositional listener has an active posture of wanting to be a student of the word themselves. Um, and so, uh, kind of by way of review, um, and, and just so that we're all on the same page, what is expositional preaching? How would you define expositional preaching? The text drives the sermon. Great. Yeah, understanding Scripture based on Scripture. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So, with that in mind, if that's what, it, that's what expositional preaching is, what do you think then? How would, how do you think you might define expositional listening? Excellent, listening to find the whole meaning of the passage. Um, yes, absolutely. Expositional listening is listening for the meaning of the passage of Scripture and accepting that meaning as the main idea to be grasped for our personal and corporate lives 
as Christians. So it's listening for that. It's accepting that as well so that we both identify it and uh, don't try and uh, ignore that, but we submit to that. We accept it for our lives. Uh, Turn with me to Acts 17. Acts 17, starting in verse 10, we see the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. We should both receive the word, with eagerness, and examine the scriptures for ourselves. Expositional listening is not only a passive receiving, it's also an active examination of the scriptures so that we are not only being fed, but we're also self-feeders of God's word. There are many benefits of expositional listening, but I'd like to highlight just two of them. First, Expositional listening cultivates a hunger for God's word. When when we're not only passive receivers of God's word, but we're active listeners to God's word, we, we grow accustomed to what God's voice sounds like in Scripture. We grow accustomed to listening to God. We become familiar with his voice. And the more we feed on the satisfying nourishing bread of God's word, the more our appetite for God's word increases. Expositional listening cultivates a hunger for God's word. Second, expositional listening contributes to the unity of a church. This is why it's a mark of a healthy church member. It contributes to the unity of a church. So I'm sure that most of us would agree That unity is something that we should value. Unity is something that we should strive for as a church, right? But it's important that we remember that we should not pursue unity at all costs. Because you can have an unhealthy unity. Uh, The KKK is pretty unified. But they're unified about the wrong thing. It's not a valuable unity, okay? That's an extreme example. But the point is... We don't, unity doesn't just, isn't just valuable intrinsically. We have to be unified around something. Something unifies us. There's a strand that ties us together. And the more that we pursue the word of God, the more that we feed on the word of God, it becomes the truth of God's word that unites us together. We don't want unity if it's not unity around God's truth. Biblical unity comes when we all delight in Scripture as God has given it to us. When we all are submitting our hearts to the authority of Scripture. When we're all allowing Scripture to shape our minds. Allowing Scripture to shape our hearts. And allowing Scripture to shape our actions as well. So how can we cultivate this habit of expositional listening? Well, um, a couple of things I would 
point to as ways that we can do this practically. Uh, first of all, especially as it relates to uh, expositional preaching, meditate on the sermon passage from Sunday in your quiet time. How often do we hear a great text preach, feel conviction from the Holy Spirit in the moment, and then forget everything that we just heard before we even get to lunch? It's, I mean, I know for me it happens all the time where I just I, I, I let things get in the way. I let, let that work of God be a memory instead of something that is continued in my heart. But revisiting Sunday's sermon text on Monday morning in a quiet time or some other day, uh, it's a great way to go back to that place that the Lord had you in when you were hearing the word preached and to continue that work of God in your heart. And you may even see the point of the passage more clearly than you did before as you take your time and meditate on it personally and having already had some illumination that's come through the preaching of God's word. A second way that we can cultivate this habit is by talking about and praying with others about the sermon and the sermon text after church. So this is something we build into our life as a church with the sermon discussion guide that we uh, use during um, our home fellowship. And it helps as receivers of the Word of God if we get the chance to fellowship around the Word together. And, you know, the, the once-a-month opportunity that we have for home fellowship to gather around that is great— uh, but it doesn't have to stop there. There's other ways that we can do this, um, even when it's not, you know, on the calendar. Uh, for instance, all of our groups, you know, meet once a month for our scheduled time. But, you know, maybe a group, your group, wants to go and gather around the Word um, and, and, and enjoy that fellowship or around the Word together. Or uh, maybe you can use the sermon for Sunday as a guide for your own family worship. You and your spouse and your kids have all heard of the sermon on Sunday. So it's a great starting point for a conversation in which you can consider more how to apply the word that you've heard preached as a family and with one another. And maybe you can even explain some things in greater detail um, than, the, than, than whoever was preaching was able to do in just one sermon. So those are a couple of ways that we can cultivate this habit individually and also even in our families and in our, um, our groups together as we seek to all be uh, healthy church members who are expositional listeners. So let's uh, look at Mark 2. A healthy church member is a biblical theologian. And you might hear that and think, ah, that's, <laughs> I'm, I'm not qualified to be a biblical theologian. But here's, here's what I mean. I mean, let, let's go back to what biblical theology is. Uh, and I'm going to throw this out to you. Define what is biblical theology. What else? Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when we say... Uh, when we say biblical theology, well, I guess I should say, when we say theology in general, 
think all those things are encompassed in that, where it's a study of God, but it can also be broadly understood as, you know, just a, you know, maybe a biblical way of looking, you know, a theology of the world, a theology of culture, a theology of whatever. When we talk about biblical theology, um, certainly any theology we have ought to be biblical, but the term biblical theology really refers to seeing Scripture as one whole story with one main point one whole story with one main point. And so, to practice biblical theology is, first of all, for a church member, to know God as he reveals himself. To know God as he reveals himself. So that's, that's where we get into an understanding of who God is based on the Bible, right? So we understand God as he's revealed himself. So you and I don't get a vote. It's not a, you know, I like to think of God as, that's, that is nowhere uh, to be found in the Bible. To develop our ideas, to develop our ideas of God based on the Bible is to honor God for who he actually is, who he has revealed himself to be. And to practice biblical theology is to know the big overarching story of God's work of redemption. The one great story that encompasses all of Scripture. So, all of us can be biblical theologians. This is what biblical theology is. It's understanding the big picture of God's story. God as he's revealed himself in the scripture. We're not talking about being a, a, a scholar in academia. We're talking about understanding how God has revealed scripture. When we understand the big story of the whole Bible, we can understand how each individual piece of scripture fits into the larger narrative. Being biblical theologians helps us put all of Scripture in its proper context. Biblical theology also helps us see the Bible as coherent. So the Bible is not just a random collection of stories and teachings. It has a shape. It's one story. And biblical theology uh, also helps us see that the Bible has a main point, namely Jesus Christ. Biblical theologians understand that every part of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, points to Christ. So how does, how does biblical theology work to promote health in a church member? Well, practicing biblical theology helps us overcome our wrong ideas. When we begin to recognize the Bible as one big story with one major point, we start to see that God is consistent in his revelation. He has consistent values. He has a consistent will. He has a consistent purpose for his people. And when we see that, we'll begin to set aside our wrong ideas about the Bible and about God and all of those things that are really just our own opinions and don't align with God's consistent revelation. Similarly, biblical theology helps protect a church against doctrinal controversies. This kind of gets back to the unity idea that we were talking about before of we're unified around something and not just uh, unified in general. Biblical theology enables us to move past seeing the Bible as a bunch of individual puzzle pieces. Biblical theology gives us the picture that's on the box. And the more that we look at the picture that's on the puzzle box, the more easily we're able to recognize the pieces that don't belong in the puzzle. We're able to recognize 
in scriptural terms, uh, false doctrines, things that don't belong, things that don't fit in the puzzle of God's plan of redemption, God's revelation of himself. We may not understand every detail of every piece of the puzzle, but we can recognize those ideas that don't belong in the puzzle at all, and we can better see how the individual pieces fit in there. So practically, how do we become healthier by becoming biblical theologians? Well, one way is to study the scriptures thematically. So what I mean by that is taking a theme or a topic and just tracing across scripture how that, um, how, how we see that in different parts of scripture, how that is carried through the narrative of redemption. So I, I would say just from the outset, this should be a supplement not our main diet of God's word. Our main diet should be reading scripture as God has given scripture to us with, with the author's construction, both the human author and the Holy Spirit, the ultimate author. So that, that should be our main diet is, is reading scripture as it's been given to us. But it can be helpful to us as a supplement to study scripture thematically. It can help us grow in our understanding of, of biblical theology. So for example... Uh, as we take a topic and trace it through Scripture, um, this it, it especially can be helpful if uh, you're talking or looking, thinking about a topic that you're not particularly familiar with, or you're looking to ask, what does the Bible say about this? Well, so take a, top, a topic like work, meaning like our occupation, things like that. Trace it throughout Scripture. What was, what was work like at the beginning of creation before the fall? What was work like or how is, how is work affected by the fall? What does God say to the nation of Israel about work? Um, what truths can be found about work in wisdom literature? Uh, how does the death and resurrection of Jesus affect the way that we think about work? Uh, what do the epistles say about work? What does work look like in the new creation? All the way through, we're looking through the Bible, through the arc of redemptive history to see what, how does this topic, how, is, how can I trace this throughout? And as we do, we not only grow in our understanding of that topic and what the Bible says about it, but that topic also becomes a lens through which we can see the big story of Scripture with Jesus at the center. And so that's one way that we can grow in both our understanding of you know, individual topic, but also our understanding of seeing Scripture as one whole story with continuity and coherence throughout. Um, another way to become a biblical theologian is to consider the Old Testament, the way that the New Testament writers look at the Old Testament. Uh, so try to adopt, even as you're reading the New Testament, adopt the New Testament uh, attitude toward the Old Testament. You know, ask in in a New Testament passage, how, how is this fulfilling something in the Old Testament? Or uh, how is this different from or similar to an Old Testament teaching? Or in what way does this clarify or unveil or amplify something in the Old Testament? And, uh, and then likewise, when you're reading the Old Testament, study it with Jesus in mind. Study it with the New Testament in view. Uh, ask, where does this passage fit in the timeline of redemptive history? The Bible's one story, so this fits in somewhere in there. Uh, how does it point to Jesus? How is this foundational for an understanding of New Testament Christianity? And so uh, the, w one of the remarkable things about Scripture is how, especially the New Testament authors, uh, look back to the Old Testament and see continuity. They see coherence. They see this is all one story. 
And the more that we get into Scripture, the more we not only understand what Scripture says, but our attitude towards Scripture starts to mimic the attitude of Scripture that the Scripture writers had about Scripture. That was kind of like inception happening. Biblical theology inception. Uh, It's like one of the nerdiest things that's ever come out of my mouth. Anyway. (laughs) Mark 3. Not the passage. Mark, the third mark of a healthy church member. Third mark of a healthy church member is a healthy church member is gospel saturated. So this, this may seem obvious, but it will never get old to hear this. So for all of our sakes, so we can be unified around this and refreshed by this, what is the gospel? Good news, yes. And what is that good news? What's that? Right, Jesus' resurrection and resurrection from death. Right, right, right. yeah, absolutely. Right. Right. And what does that all mean for us? Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a new competitor. Yeah, for <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah. Jesus is, lives a perfect life, and God counts his righteousness toward us, even though we did not live that life, right? Likewise, he didn't live an unrighteous life, but our unrighteousness is counted to him, and he dies as our substitute. So that is, um, there's a lot more we could say about the gospel, obviously, but I think that's good to, uh, be, um, to have that on the forefront of our minds. So how should the gospel affect our day-to-day lives as Christians? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Good. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, notice that uh, I, I said a healthy church member is gospel-saturated. Gospel-saturated. It's not just someone who understands the gospel or even someone who, um, who understands it and, and tells others about it. It's, it's someone, a healthy church member is, is gospel-saturated. All parts of their lives are saturated by the gospel. The gospel is not just the front door into the Christian life. The gospel is the whole of the Christian life. And when I say that we shouldn't just understand the gospel or even share the gospel, but go even further and live a gospel-saturated life, I hope you don't hear me saying that, okay, that means we need to work harder and we need to increase the burden of the Christian life. No, just the opposite. (laughs) To move beyond just gospel understanding and to be saturated with the gospel is burden lifting. The more we're saturated with the gospel, the more we experience the freedom that Christ has purchased for us. So, how do we become gospel saturated? Well, first, know the gospel. Know the gospel. It is 
There are, there are giant neon lines from every text of Scripture pointing to the arc of the gospel. And it, it seems obvious that, of course, if we're going to be gospel-saturated, we must know the gospel. But we can't skip past this too quickly or assume that we know the gospel, that we've got it down. It's important that we don't have uh, too narrow or too wide a view of the gospel, that our view isn't too small or too large. If we have too small of a view of the gospel, we can view it just as fire insurance or even a license to sin. You know, like, ah, I'm forgiven, gospel, I'm fine. Or if we have too large of a view of the gospel, uh, we can mistake the implications of the gospel as part of the gospel. So, for instance, we might see good works as part of the gospel rather than an implication of the gospel. We, we might mistake those works, which are actually something that God's grace leads to. They're not um, necessarily part of the good news. So we have to make sure that we have a clear understanding of where are the boundary lines of the gospel, biblically speaking, so that we can live in the good of the gospel, so that we can saturate our lives with the gospel. So it's also important for our own understanding and for our evangelism that we recognize the simplicity of the gospel. Uh, one just practical way that we can both refresh our minds or renew our minds in the gospel and arm ourselves for uh, evangelism and, and gospel conversations is to commit a simple gospel outline to memory. Uh, so, for instance, one that's very common is uh, God, man, Christ response. God is the holy creator who created us to live in a holy relationship with him. Man has broken that relationship by sinning against God and deserves his wrath. Christ lived a perfect life, died as a substitute for sinners, and rose defeating death. And all who respond by turning from sin and trusting in Jesus are reconciled to God. And, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of... Uh, I hope this doesn't sound trite, but it's like the elevator pitch gospel of where all of the essentials are there. And so it can, we can understand sort of that outline. And as we unpack the glories of the gospel and the multifacets of the gospel, we have those hooks that we can kind of hang uh, things on. And also, as we're sharing the gospel, you know, if we, if we start at the beginning and get caught up in all the little details, you know, we might run out of time and never, you know, never get to the cross or never get to sin or never get to faith and repentance. But if we have that simple outline, it can help in communicating the gospel. And all of those pillars of the gospel can help to saturate our lives as we think about ourselves in light of who God is and ourselves in, in light of what we deserve from God and ourselves in light of what Christ has done. Um, and, and then one thing I would say is desire to hear the gospel and preach the gospel to yourself. When you hear the gospel, don't tune out as if, oh, I've heard this before. This is elementary. I need to move on to deeper spiritual waters. You know, wake me up when you get to something that I don't know already. Um, no, when you hear the gospel, listen to it afresh. See your sins nailed to the cross. Remind yourself of the forgiveness that you have in Christ. Remind yourself of who Christ is and who God has made you in Christ. Remind yourself of the promises of the gospel. Remind your heart of the cleansing that you have through the blood of Jesus. 
remind yourself of the freedom from sin's power that you have in Christ's resurrection. Don't let the gospel become stale to you. Keep reminding yourself we need the gospel preached to ourselves every day, by ourselves, to our hearts. To mark four of a healthy church member is that a healthy church member is genuinely converted, right? This is the flip side of convert of a biblical understanding of conversion being a mark of a healthy church. Well, a healthy church member is genuinely converted. And again, it should be obvious, but I don't know about you, but I've heard multiple testimonies from baptistries in different churches of people who have this same story. You know, I grew up in church, and I thought I was a Christian, but then I heard the gospel in a way I'd never heard before, and I realized I, I didn't understand that at all. I've been in my, living in my sin this whole time, and Jesus, finally, he has saved me, and I've, I've repented of my sins and trusted in him for the first time, even though I thought I was a Christian for all these years. It's a common story, especially in the Bible Belt. This is a testimony that's proclaimed from baptistries all over. In fact, at a previous church that I was a member of, uh, there was a woman who was on staff at the church who for years, I mean, she had, uh, had kids who were Christian. She had a husband who was Christian. For years, she thought she was a genuine convert, and then she realized uh, through some biblical counseling that she was receiving, she was dead in her sins, and she never really understood the gospel. She had never trusted in Jesus. And uh, even though it may have been tempting for her to try and save face and just kind of keep that quiet, um, it was really a powerful moment for our church when she humbly and joyfully entered the baptistry and publicly declared that she had been dead in her sins, but Jesus saved her. And um, so anyway, this is, uh, this is something that, can, that, that happens a lot where we, we realize, man, these people uh, that thought they were saved actually finally got converted for real. They really did um, have the life change that Jesus brings. So what is conversion, biblically speaking? What is conversion? Right? Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. New heart. Born again. Yeah. 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 Yeah, when, uh, when we went over this in, with the students, um, I used the phrase, uh, using kind of words from Ephesians 2, the conversion is from death to life by grace through faith. From death to life by grace through faith. And I think those are really important ideas when we're talking about conversion, like from death to life. Because Jesus brings radical change, total change, complete change, not a partial change, not a little course correction, from death to life. But it's by grace and through faith. It is totally free. It is all 
God. He receives all glory for this radical change that takes place in our lives. So, uh, biblically, how can we know if we're genuinely converted? Well, when it comes to a question as serious as this, when, we, when we're asking about assurance of salvation, we need more than opinions. We need more than a tradition, we, and we need more than a logical argument. We need God to speak on this matter. What does God say? How does God say we will know if we are genuinely converted, if we're actually his child? But we also need to be honest with ourselves. We need to be actually willing to answer this question and ask this question of our hearts. We don't need to let let pride get in the way of a genuine assessment of our soul. We should honestly look at our hearts through the lens of Scripture. And here are some questions to ask. These These all come from 1 John. Do I walk in the light or the darkness? John says, if we say we have fellowship with Jesus while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. So do I, do I walk in light or in the darkness? Do, do I grieve over sin? This isn't a matter of perfection, but when I sin, am, am I okay with it or do I grieve over sin? Am I quick to repent of my sin? Do I desire to honor God with my life? These are all things that characterize someone who has been changed by the grace of Jesus. Another question from 1 John. Do I love God the Father? A lot of people are okay with Jesus uh, in their understanding of him. He's a lot more offensive than they think he is. But there's a lot of people who are like, oh yeah, Jesus is great. Jesus is a great teacher. He had a, some really good moral ideas, Sermon on the Mount, whatnot. Yes, I like Jesus. First um, John 2, 22 and 23 says this, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So do I love not just my idea of God, but do I love who God has actually revealed himself to be in Scripture? Do I love God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Do I love the, the biblical God, or do I just love my concept of God? Uh, another question from First John. Do I love other Christians? First John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Do I have a desire to be with other believers? Do I love my brothers and sisters the same way that our Father has loved us? Love of other Christians is is a mark of someone who's been genuinely converted. Uh, Another question from 1 John. Do I have the testimony of the Spirit that I am a child of God? 1 John 3.24 Uh, John says, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Do, Do I feel, do I experience the Spirit convicting me of sin? Do I see the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in my life? Love, joy, peace, patience. Do I have the testimony of the Spirit that I'm a child of God? And then uh, one last question from 1 John. Am I persevering 
in the faith. 1 John 5, 4-5, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So does my relationship with Jesus increasingly define my life? Am I pressing forward in faith? Am I persevering? Mark 5 of a healthy church member is that a healthy church member is a biblical evangelist. So uh, what is evangelism, biblically speaking? Great. Telling others the gospel. Making disciples. Yeah. Why do you think that being a biblical evangelist is a mark of a healthy church member? Right? Definitely. Yeah, yeah. We talk about what we love, right? Yeah, the Great Commission is given to the church as a whole. Not only part of a church, not only select members of the church. The Great Commission is given to the whole church. It cannot be accomplished by one person alone, by themselves. The Great Commission is not just for pastors or missionaries. We know this, right? Jesus' plan for making disciples involves every believer sharing the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection and what he accomplished in them. Another reason why, the, um, why being a biblical evangelist is a mark of a healthy church member, because if you think about it, it's like, well, if we're talking about a church member, I'm, isn't that kind of like inside, like in, in the church? And evangelism kind of like focus on people outside. So why is sharing the gospel a mark of a healthy church member? Well, as we share the gospel, we build up the body of Christ. When we share the gospel with lost people, and then as people come to faith in Christ, it's an encouragement to our fellow believers. We're stirring one another up as we remind each other about the life-saving and life-changing power of the gospel. Uh, as we hear the testimony of someone uh, else sharing the gospel, uh, when, when we hear about, oh, you know, I, I was talking with so-and-so about the gospel, or I finally had the opportunity to share with my neighbor or my coworker or whatever, we're challenged to share the gospel. It's a, there's an edifying building up effect the more that we all are sharing the gospel. And as people come to faith in Jesus as a result of our evangelism and enter into the body of Christ, uh, God receives glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. It's, it's a mark of a healthy church member. It's a mark of a healthy church uh, that, that we would be biblical evangelists. So how do we make sure that we're evangelizing biblically? Well, first, be clear on the non-negotiables of the gospel. And again, having a basic outline of the gospel uh, really helps make sure that the main things are there. Whether it's God, man, Christ response, like I talked about, or creation, fall, redemption, restoration, something like that. Make sure that you're honest about who God is, who humans are, what sin is, who Jesus is, what he has done, how we must respond to him. 
Uh, make sure you emphasize that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And, uh, and remember, and this again gets out, being a healthy church member as an evangelist. We're in this together, and we're stronger together. So the Great Commission, as I said before, is not just for part of the body of Christ. It's for the whole body of Christ. But it's also to remember that the Great Commission is not for individual Christians. It is to be accomplished by local churches living the gospel together. We're to do this together. And so take advantage of gathered worship. I mean, simply inviting someone to church isn't in and of itself evangelism, but it can be a really useful thing in evangelism. Uh, You can use it as a conversation starter. Someone comes to church, take them out to lunch and ask them, you know, about what they heard read or sung or preached. Uh, And take advantage also of the group that you're a part of, your your Bible study group. Uh, You know, we gather together in homes uh, once a month for fellowship as believers around the Word. But what if um, your group gathered at another time? A gathering that you specifically target as a place to invite lost neighbors and friends and co-workers so that you can build relationships. And so that, again, we're stronger together in our relationship building for the purpose of evangelism. We're stronger together as we seek to encourage one another in our evangelistic efforts. These are just some practical ideas that we can, um, we can implement as we seek to be healthy church members, members of one another, who are growing as biblical evangelists and wanting to lean on one another as we seek to share the gospel. So then uh, last week, you know, we talked about church membership as a healthy, or as a mark of a healthy church. And a healthy church member is a committed member. Um, so several pieces of, um, of biblical evidence point us to this concept of, of church membership. Uh, you know, some people would ask, you know, is church membership a biblical concept? Um, but we see throughout Scripture uh, this idea that we, there's a defined group, there's a defined membership of a local church. Uh, you know, we have church leadership mentioned in the Bible. In fact, God holds shepherds accountable for how they lead and shepherd a flock. And so there's an implication there that there must be a defined group that that shepherd is account that uh, that shepherd is responsible for in order for God to hold him accountable if, if it's an undefined group um, it's it's it doesn't really make sense for uh, for that that shepherd to be responsible over someone that he may not even know is defined as part of his group right uh, we see this in church discipline um, the fact that there's an there's an in and there's an out there's a defined group there's a defined membership it's implied but it's there. It's, it's, it's there in scriptural teaching. And uh, so we see this, we see de- different evidences of biblical church membership throughout scripture. There's others. And um, the, the main heart of it, though, and the main heart is Jesus' words in John 13, 34 to 35. He says in, in uh, verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The essence of church membership is committed love for one another. That's the bottom line. That's the heart of what it means that we are members of one another, that we are committed to one another. We can't be a full disciple of Jesus if we're not a member of a church. Loving our brothers and sisters is an essential part of following Jesus. 
in John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And we also cannot fulfill the great commission if we're not a member of a church. Jesus designed the church to bear witness to him as a body in a way that individuals cannot do by themselves. By this, people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so it damages our witness. We're not able to witness as Jesus would have us if we're not a member of a church, if we're not committed to a body of believers in loving one another. So what does a committed church member look like? Well, uh, a committed church member attends regularly. You may be familiar with Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, uh, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, right? Well, this is a passage that's often just used to beat over the head of someone who's not been coming to church for a while. And this is so much more than that. It's not that. It's something else entirely. It's an important teaching about why it is so important that we are committed to one another. Listen to this. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together is just the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need each other so that we'll stir one another up in love. We need to encourage one another so that we'll persevere to the last day. A committed church member seeks peace. Paul tells us in Romans to pursue what makes peace for mutual upbuilding. A committed church member edifies others. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that all things we do when we gather should be for building up. A committed church member warns and admonishes others. A live and let live attitude is not Christian love. A committed church member pursues reconciliation. In fact, Jesus goes as far in Matthew 5 uh, to say, if you're offering a gift at, your, at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. A committed church member bears with others. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. A committed church member prepares for the ordinances. Uh, we'll have an opportunity this Sunday to observe both uh, ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And as church members, we should rejoice in baptism uh, and the new life that it signifies. We should welcome a new member into the body of Christ. This is a congregational event when we have a baptism. And we should all examine our hearts before the Lord's Supper. And I, and I mean that in a congregational sense. Again, we're talking about healthy church membership. Paul emphasizes this in 1 Corinthians 11, that we should examine our hearts to be sure that there's no division at the table because Christ is not divided. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And so we should be one when we come to the table. And then lastly, a committed church member supports the work of the ministry. Paul in Romans 12 talks about the different gifts, the different uh, grace that has been given to us that we are to use. We've all been given a stewardship of time and talent and treasure 
for the purpose of furthering the gospel ministry of the local church. Mark 7, a healthy church member seeks, seeks discipline. Hmm. This is why you came tonight for a good, feel-good talk like this, right? A healthy church member seeks discipline. So uh, we'll talk more about the, the mark of, of church discipline next week uh, from a congregational perspective. Um, but we'll, just for our purposes tonight, what is, what is discipline? Well, uh, there is a, a description that Habidi um, uses that I think is really, really good. And, and it's, it sort of gets at kind of a broad concept of what biblical church, dis- or not just church discipline, but biblical discipline in terms uh, that God uses is. Uh, discipline is, is a biblical process that, that polishes the jewel of Christ-likeness. I love that. Discipline is a biblical process that polishes the jewel of Christ-likeness. What does discipline look like in the life of a healthy church member? Well, uh, consider 2 Timothy 3.16. This is a familiar uh, passage about Scripture and inspiration. Uh, but, but listen to what Paul writes about Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And we can summarize what Paul gives as the use of Scripture, the, the purpose of Scripture, as basically two types of discipline. Formative discipline, discipline that shapes and forms kind of on the front end, and corrective discipline that sort of is a reaction or a response. So formative discipline is the process in which God uses Scripture to teach, Paul says, and train in righteousness. And this is by far the most common form of discipline in our lives as Christians. This is you know, where we get even into what we would identify as spiritual disciplines of Bible intake and things like that. It's, it's, a, it's a formative habit forming and uh, habits that form us uh, discipline. And then there's also corrective discipline. Corrective discipline is the process in which God uses Scripture to, as Paul says, reproof and correct us. This involves rebuke and admonishment when we see a brother or sister in sin. In extreme cases of uh, an unrepentant church member, it can even involve uh, removing someone from fellowship. In the body of Christ, we're accountable to one another, and we have a responsibility to watch out uh, for one another. So how do we joyfully seek discipline? Well, receive the word of God with meekness. James tells us to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. When we hear the word, we should never have an arrogant attitude toward the word as if to say, I've already got this figured out. I don't need to hear this again. God is making you more like Christ. And you are not there yet. He is making you in process. He is making you more like Christ. So don't reject one of the main ways that he seeks to do this. There's never a time when we're beyond needing to hear any portion of Scripture. Receive the Word of God with meekness. Uh, Second, learn to recognize that chastisement is an evidence of God's love. And humbly accept correction from others. In, uh, in Hebrews 12, 5, and 6, the author writes, 
Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Remember that discipline, both formative and corrective, is a form of God's love. So don't be quick to reject a brother or sister's rebuke. Keep in mind that they may be an instrument of your father's loving discipline, which he wants to use to make you more like Christ. Take seriously our responsibility to rebuke others. Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Don't correct your brother in arrogance. Pursue your wandering brother in love. And as you experience discipline, both formative and corrective, remember that Jesus is making you more like himself, so don't forget to rejoice. Quickly, uh, Mark 8, a healthy church member is a growing disciple. So we'll talk more about discipleship in a couple weeks. Uh, But it's an important uh, reality that we recognize as healthy church members that a Christian who doesn't grow is not a biblical concept. A Christian is someone who is being conformed to the image of Christ, as we've been talking about. Of course, we need to watch out for problems in our thinking about growth. We don't want to get caught in the performance trap like a Pharisee and think that our goal is success or, or building up a reputation of a godly person. No, no, no. Our, our goal in growing in Christ-likeness is to honor God and to delight in Him more. We also don't want to judge by the wrong standards. Growth in godliness isn't a matter of comparing ourselves to others. Which on the one hand means we shouldn't be discouraged by comparing ourselves to someone who is, uh, who is further along than us in the Christian life. But we also shouldn't boast uh, in, 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 uh, over someone that we believe is not as mature or godly as we are. The more we grow in Christ, we actually become more aware of how undeserving we are of God's favor. And more amazed at God for his grace to the likes of us. Think about the attitude uh, in Luke 18, 13. Uh, but the, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So how do we grow to be like Jesus? Well, there's a, a lot of ways we could answer that question. But a couple that I would point out to you. Uh, In fact, just one that I would point out to you because it's so relevant to our topic at hand. It's participate in the local church. God has given our church as a means of grace to make you more like Christ. Uh, Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers... To equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. One of the key ways that we grow to be like Jesus is by participating in the life of the body of Christ, the life of the local church. In Mark 9, a healthy church member is a humble follower. So the ninth mark of a healthy church in nine marks is uh, biblical church leadership, and a healthy church member is a humble followers. The Bible tells us to honor our elders, that those who rule well are considered worthy of double honor. And likewise, because elders are the Lord's servant and that are teaching and are patiently to uh, correct opponents with gentleness, it's important that a healthy church member be teachable. Elders are God's instruments for shepherding and leadership. So a healthy church member's actions uh, toward leadership. Uh, a healthy church member per- patiently participates in the selection of leaders. Um, this is something that just even in, in the last uh, few weeks I've gotten to experience in kind of a unique perspective. Um, I, I've been really encouraged by, as I, I hear of, of, of all of, of various members of our church who have been invested in uh, the process of, of elder ordination that uh, I just went through recently. I think it's a, it's, it's, it's a sign of health that someone would want to say, hey, I, I want to be, I want to have uh, a voice to say, hey, this is what Scripture says, and I, I want to be invested in this process because this is a biblical process, and we're in this together. We as a church are part of this. Um, a healthy church member obeys and submits to leaders. Uh, Hebrews thirteen seventeen gives us an exhortation to that. Uh, a healthy church member follows the leader's example. In First Peter, Peter gives instructions to leaders, to elders, and he says that they are to be examples to the flock. So just as a biblical leader is an example to the flock, or ought to be an example to the flock, inasmuch as a biblical leader is following Christ, a healthy church member follows that leader's example. It's part of the way that God has designed the church to help all of us become more like Christ. And then lastly, pray for your leaders. Please, (laughs) please pray for your leaders. Paul asks for prayer uh, from the Colossians. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open up a door to us for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. I'll give you one, one last bonus mark. I know we're, we're past time, but it's last bonus mark. Mark 10, a healthy church member is a prayer warrior. And I'll just give you one verse on this that I think is really key to understanding and, and it's a clear illustration of how a healthy church member is a prayer warrior. 
in Acts 1.15, we see at the very inception of the church, the, the, the disciples of Jesus in Acts 1.14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Right out of the beginning, one of the marks of the church is prayer, devoting ourselves to prayer. And so uh, that's your, your bonus mark, mark number 10. So in all of these things, again, these are, these are ideals. Uh, these are things that can be intimidating if we think that we're striving for perfection. But I think best understood as we look at all of these things, the reason why we should be interested in all of these things is not so that we can do better and perform better, just as we were talking about, but all of these are means of God's grace to make us more like Christ. God's accomplishing His purpose for His people in the local church. And so all of us, as we grow as healthy church members, uh, it, it's not about our performance. It's not about trying to, uh, to be better so that we can have a godlier reputation or anything like that. All of us get to participate in this amazing story of God's redemption as he is preparing the bride of Christ, as he's sanctifying her, washing us with the word. We get to engage in this process, and uh, the life of the local church is marked by all of that. So I pray that all of us uh, would take these things to heart and consider how the Lord might be growing us into greater health as a church and to into greater health as church members. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for, again, uniting us together in Christ. Thank you for this particular group of people, this local church that you have united together, that you have sovereignly ordained to be a family of believers, committed to one another in love, helping one another grow in Christ. Lord, I pray that we as individuals, Lord, would steward well the grace that you have given us, that we might build one another up in love. Lord, I pray that we as a church, as a whole, Lord, would humbly consider where we are not healthy and humbly pursue you, humbly pursue your grace, your body-building grace, so that we might, Lord, be a church that honors you more out of a love and gratitude for all that you have done, us, done for us in Christ so that we might all be more conformed to the image of Christ and so that we might all Lord, endure until that day when we see you face to face. We love you and praise you and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.